morning. This is the reading of the word of the Lord from Judges 6, 11 through 16. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiah's right, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why is all of this happening to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Thanks, Stephanie. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? We're good? One of the things I love about having... um, members of the church read the scriptures is they can get the names of the Hebrews right and I don't have to. I can just say what, what they said. Um, thank you, Sam and Shushan, for sharing. Very grateful to have had the opportunity. We spent about two hours talking uh, a couple of months ago and, and just the tears you see are genuine and they flow freely and they flow from a place of deep love and care. So would you please be praying for um, them as they, you guys head to Armenia here, how soon? In a month. In a month. All right, good. We are in Judges chapter 6 as we're, we're going through the book of Judges together as a church. And in Judges chapter 6, we meet the character Gideon. And uh, maybe other than Samson, Gideon is arguably the most important figure, the most important person in the book of Judges. He gets the most screen time. He gets the most verses. Uh, and so uh, we're going to spend the next four weeks looking at the life of Gideon. And I'll just, I'll warn you, Gideon's life has some ups and downs. He's got some real great moments. He's got some real downer moments. Uh, and he, in fact, his story ends on, a, unfortunately, a very sad note. Uh, but here at the beginning of the story, it's kind of a good note. And so let's see what lessons God wants to teach us from Judges chapter 6. I'll pray, and then we'll dive right in. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to study your word. God, what we, 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 we come together today, and we want to just confess before you what we need is your word. We need your truth. We need the words that you want to speak to us. God, we don't need uh, man's opinion. We don't need uh, just our ideas. What we need is the truth of your word to transform us. God, for those who are here who are not yet Christians, God, I pray that you would show your love to them, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness to them. God, for those who are here today who are Christians, God, we need to be transformed uh, because none of us here are perfect and we want to be shaped and changed to look more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. You know, I think about uh, the, the power of, of words and names that people have called you. Did anybody here have a nickname maybe growing up or even currently have a nickname that kind of stuck with you? Uh, you think about just different words that people s- speak. You know, you can have nicknames sometimes can be kind of positive, right? You know, you call somebody shorty or you call them, you know, whatever, the, you know, lefty, just things that are kind of done in maybe in loving jest or whatever. I don't know. Shorty's a good name. I, I actually know somebody who's a grown adult woman who has gone by Shorty since she was like a child. And that's what her name is. So I actually have a guy in my community group. His name is Hector. And he, uh, 
we, except his name's not Hector. I didn't find this out until a few months after. His name is actually Craig, but he showed up in college and his college roommate says, Craig, you don't look like a Craig. You look like a Hector. And now his name is Hector. And in fact, when he went with his wife, he took his wife to go meet his family and Hector's mom said, have you seen Craig? She said, Craig, I don't, I don't think I've met Craig. She's like, you rode here with Craig. Like, she didn't know that his name was really Craig. <clears throat> Sometimes there can be nicknames and they can stick and they can be fun and they can be good. Although for many of us, I imagine, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but for many of us, I can imagine you can think back in your life when people have used words or names to tear you down. Uh, Things that are are painful, things that are hurtful, words of of not building up an encouragement, but discouragement and, and cutting words. And those stick with us, and those affect us, and those affect how uh, we think about ourselves and how we live our lives. The Bible says that our words have great power. I think of verses like Proverbs 18.21 that says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Your words are powerful enough that that Solomon, the author of Proverbs, says there's actually death and life in your tongue. Or Proverbs 12, 18 says, the one who's, there is one whose rash words, uncaring words, are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Or in the New Testament, James, he writes that every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. You can, you can tame a bear, you can tame a lion, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless uh, our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not be so. It's not just the Bible that tells us that our words have great power, significant power, um, psychology, modern science would tell us the same things. I've, I've, I've referenced it before, but in 2012, there was an article that came out in the New York Times that said that negative words, when spoken over someone, have five times more emotional impact than a positive word that's spoken. People are five times more likely to remember you're an idiot than you're loved or you're beautiful It takes five times more positive words to emotionally balance out one negative statement. For those of you who are parents or teachers or bosses or in positions of leadership and influence, let that be a lesson to you about just the power that your words have to build up or to tear down. You think about um, even just uh, the example of how how different it is to go into your workplace, let's say, and you walk in with an attitude and say, oh, I hope I don't screw up today. Versus an attitude saying, I hope I do well today. Now, are those kind of the same thing? On one level, they are, aren't they? I I hope I don't screw up. I hope I do well. But psychologists would tell us that there are profound implications, profound differences just between those two mindsets. One is, is focused on the negative. I hope I don't screw up. The other one is focused on positive. I, I want to do well. I want to succeed. We're going to look at this story today. We're going to see the power of words. And in particular, we're going to see the power of Gideon's words, his own words of self-doubt against himself. But more importantly, we're going to see the power of God's word. We're going to see the power when God says something, just how powerful it is. And that's the big idea for today is this. Our words carry power because we are created in the likeness of God. 
And when God speaks, friends, hear me on this. His word is more true and powerful than our feelings or our experiences or our circumstances. God's word is more true than anything else. Amen? So that's where we're going today. Join uh, with me. We're going to go back to verse 1 of chapter 6 and look at this story. Okay, verse 1 of chapter 6. The people of Israel, you can say it with me. At this point, you're used to hearing it, right? They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is our judge's cycle. Over and over again, the people do evil. The Lord allows them to experience the consequences of their sin. They cry out to the Lord, and he raises up a deliverer. That's been our normal pattern. So the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Uh, the Midianites were sort of a, a cousin to the Israelites, if you were. If you go back into the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel through his son Isaac. But Abraham also had, he had some girls on the side, uh, call them concubines. And he had uh, some kids late in life with one of these uh, side girls. And the tribe of the Midianites come from one of these uh, relationships that are outside of God's plan for marriage and sexuality. And you see that the Midianites throughout the history of Israel, sometimes there's an okay relationship but most of the time it's not very good. This is one of those not very good times. It says, the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Because of Midian, the people of Israel made themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So they're like supposed to be taking over the whole land, supposed to be taking possession of this promised land, but instead they're hiding in caves in the hills. Verse three, for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east, so there's kind of a coalition, would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. So their strategy was, let the Israelites grow the crops and just about when it's time for harvest, we'll come in en masse and we'll just take all of their food away from them. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in numbers. Both they and their camels could not be counted. Now, I've never been to the Middle East or to part places in Africa where locusts are so thick. That you can see videos of it or you can hear people that live in that region of the world describe it. Like, you know, black out the sun. But I am from Alaska and our state bird there is the mosquito. And uh, I've experienced something that's kind of like that. Like dive, run for cover when the mosquitoes are coming. But it said that they would come up so thick, both they, their camels, they could not be counted. They laid waste to the land as they came in, and Israel was brought very low. That's a new phrase in Judges. Israel was brought very low. Financially, economically, spiritually, they were brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now, verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent. Now, what would we be expecting so far? In our cycle in the book of Judges, whenever the people would cry out, who would God send? A judge, a deliverer, a, a military leader who would be raised up to help free the people from their oppressors. But here the story is interrupted. This time the Lord does not send a judge. He sends a prophet to the people of Israel. Now, what's the prophet going to say? Uh, sorry to spoil it for you. It is not a happy message. It is an indictment. The prophet said to them, this is what God says, the God of Israel. I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. 
And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do you hear the, 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 the relational heart of God the Father? I'm your God. I, I took care of you. I've loved you. I've brought you out of slavery. And I told you, you, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Like, don't worship other gods. I want to be your God. I want to take care of you. I want to love you. I want to provide for you. But you have not obeyed my voice. You know, throughout the book of Judges, we see the people crying out. We addressed this a few weeks ago, but very often the people are not crying out from a place of repentance. They're crying out from a place of we're just miserable and want somebody to help us. And what we see here is that their prayer is not really a prayer of God. I am sorry that I have broken not only your law, but I've broken your heart. Their prayer is really more of one, hey, God, we're in this mess. Could you please help get, get, it, get us out of this mess? Can I, can I just submit to you that 3,000-ish years later, we sometimes fall into the same patterns of prayer, do we not? Lord, I, I, I promise if you just get me out of this financial mess, I'll, I'll, I'll never watch those bad movies again or whatever it would be, right? My kids try to make those kinds of deals with me. Dad, if you just let me... You know, go to this one birthday party. I'll clean every bathroom for a month. Like, well, you could clean every bathroom for a month and not go to the birthday party. I don't see why these are, you know, have to be linked together. We could just, we could just have that be part of your chores. Some of us, we, we don't grow out of that, right? We still struggle with that. One commentator, K. Lawson Younger, says this, in the practical sense, this passage addresses a common problem in the area of prayer. We turn to God in a moment of need, even when we have not been walking in his ways. Yet we expect God to answer our prayers because, and often for no other reason than we're in need. Over and over, the Bible, including the book of Judges, addresses this issue of manipulation in prayer. Relationship with God is never a mechanical process. If I would put it in my own terms, God is not a genie who exists to deliver us from our hardships. In fact, God often uses those hardships to shape us to be the men and the women that he wants us to be. So here God is, is sending a prophet. He sends an indictment. Okay, now what's going to happen? We're kind of left on a hinge. Is where the prophecy ends. You've not obeyed my voice. Is God done with his people? Is this it? Have they, have they finally sinned so much? Have they finally made God so frustrated that he says, to heck with you, I'm done. I'm going to find a new people group. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, that's a tree, at Ophrah. Let me pause for a moment here. Isn't that beautiful? God gives this indictment. The word of the Lord comes through this prophet. says, hey, I need you to understand what's going on here. Y'all have let down your part of the covenant. Y'all have sinned against me. And then God's very next step is to send the angel of the Lord. Our God is a God of grace, amen? His grace is inexhaustible despite our repeated failings. The angel of the Lord. Now, this is an interesting figure in the Bible, and it's worth just clarifying for a minute. I'm going to read a quotation at length because I think it's helpful. The angel of the Lord, just so we understand, the, the word in Hebrew, it's, uh, it's malach, but it, it basically can mean an angel or it can mean a messenger. So it can just mean a simple human messenger that, that goes and delivers a message, or it can mean a, a divine being, a divine messenger who is sent by God from heaven to deliver a word to his people. Now, that's just an angel in general that angel of the Lord, this phrase appears over and over and over in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament. 
I think there is one time in the New Testament that the angel of the Lord appears, but in the, in the Old Testament, it appears repeatedly. Sometimes when you read the context, you can find out that it's just an angel of the Lord, like an angel from the Lord. Sometimes it's just an angel. And that's not just, I mean, just an angel. Uh, let, me not, let me not understate my case here, okay? People would like fall down to the ground as though they were dead. Like seeing an angel is a frightening thing. But there are other times where the Old Testament makes it clear that we're not just dealing with an angel of the Lord, we're dealing with the angel of the Lord. In fact, a manifestation of God himself. And as we'll see in just a moment, when when Gideon falls down and and worships and says, I have seen the Lord, we're going to see that this manifestation, this angel of the Lord, is in fact God himself. Let me read to you uh, from a couple of scholars a a little bit more at length because I think it's helpful uh, clarifying information. Walter Elwell writes this. He says, the most important form of divine manifestation in the Old Testament is the angel of the Lord or the angel of God. This remarkable angel who is clearly distinguished from angels in general and who both represents himself as deity as well as distinguishing himself from God appears to Hagar, to Abraham and Lot, to Jacob, to Moses, to Balaam, Joshua, Gideon, to Manoah and his wife. That's Samson's parents. We'll get there a little bit later in Judges. And to David. He goes before the Israelites to lead them out of the land of Egypt, and he remonstrates with the Israel when they disobey God after settling in the land of Canaan. A study of these passages reveals that the angel of the Lord appeared in human form and performed normal human functions, like eating a meal. Yet he was an awe-inspiring figure, exhibiting divine attributes and prerogatives, including predicting the future, forgiving sin, and receiving worship. There's the key. Because who is supposed to receive worship alone? God. The title angel of the Lord is particularly striking because it is used in many of these passages interchangeably with the terms Yahweh and God in such a way as to leave little doubt that the angel is a manifestation of God himself. One other scholar, Louis Goldberg, says this, the connection between the angel of the Lord and the pre-incarnate, before, before becoming a man, appearance of the Messiah cannot be denied. The functions of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament prefigure the reconciling ministry of Jesus. In the New Testament, there's no mention of the angel of the Lord. The Messiah himself is this person. So, it can be fair to say that when the angel of the Lord appears, it is a form of Jesus the Son of God, the Messiah, appearing in the Old Testament at particularly important moments in time. So we're seeing Jesus and Gideon have a conversation here. Let's see this conversation. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the what Stephanie said, Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now we're supposed to laugh at that point. Y'all didn't laugh, but you, you need to understand that's a joke. Uh, uh, the process of, of separating the wheat from the chaff was one that you would do up on a high place because you wanted there to be wind. And you would do it in a high place, very visible, and you would beat the wheat with a stick and the kernels of wheat, and then the chaff would separate. The chaff would go up and the wind would blow it away. And what you'd be left with is a nice pile of wheat. Now, I don't know if you know about a wine press, but a wine press is very different. This is a vat that you hide under something so stuff doesn't fall in your wine while you're mashing out the grapes. There's usually one tub and then the 
they would flow down into a lower tub and it was a very uh, smaller, more contained, more private sort of thing. Here is Gideon, this guy hiding in a wine press while trying to make wheat. It's like, it's like the equivalent of showing up at your house while somebody's like trying to, you know, hammer a nail in with like a, like a spatula in your kitchen. Like you're just completely using the tool wrong. You are not doing anything that is respectable or, or even really useful, but it's, it's a sign a, of just how fearful the people of Israel were of the Midianites. Only way we're going to get grain is if we go hide in the wine press and do it. It's also a sign of things to come with Gideon where he is a man of tremendous fears and doubts and second guessing. Now, if that's supposed to be funny, here's even funnier. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And, you know, if you were a good Hebrew listener of this, and you'd just be busting a gut right now. Like, really? He's hiding in a wine press like a chicken, uh, beating out the grain. This is, not, uh, this is not fitting the context. But the Lord speaks this word, and, and we're going to see in a minute that this becomes true of Gideon. This becomes true of Gideon. It doesn't match his circumstances. It sure as heck doesn't match his experiences or his current emotional state. But again, what God says is more true than those things. Gideon's got some questions. Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us. Okay, the word Lord, if it's lowercase, it just means like master or sir. Uh, But when you see in your Bible, if you see Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, that's Yahweh. That's the formal name of God. So here, Gideon is having this conversation. He doesn't know that this is like the angel of the Lord. He, He probably thinks he's talking to a prophet or a messenger from God. And he's having a conversation with this guy who shows up. So please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? They, they told us about when we came out of Egypt. They told us about the parting of the Red Sea. They told us about when they took over Jericho and the walls tumbled down. Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. Ooh, time out. It is not the Lord who has forsaken the people of Israel, is it? This is the people of Israel who have forsaken the Lord. This is a side point, but how many times in your life have you been tempted to doubt God's goodness or his love for you just because there's difficult things going on in your life? When in fact, very often, maybe not every time, but very often, it is in fact our own sin and our own foolish choices that have created a relational wedge between us and God. Here Gideon is putting the blame on God. He's forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. His first objection is questioning God's goodness. And the Lord turned to him and said, again, this is just hilarious. Go in this might of yours. Like he's hiding. You know, you guys aren't, you don't think it's as funny as I do. You'll get it on the drive home. It'll come to you then. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. It's not entirely true. Um, if, if you were talking to a psychologist or a counselor today, they would say, yeah, that's some negative self-talk. Some negative self-talk. He's, he's discounting himself. Well, I can't, and we and my tribe is, we're, we're not good. We don't, and I'm weak, and I, what am I supposed to do? His, his second objection is personal talking himself down, assessing himself in purely human terms. 
And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Just like God promised to Moses, just like God promised to Joshua, God says, it's not about your great abilities. It's about the fact that I'm going to be with you. Friends, if God is on your side, it doesn't matter who or what stands against you. That is the, the thing that we need more than anything else. And he says, you'll strike them like one man. I think that Gideon was using all of that, my tribe and we, I think he was using some of that as a deflection from the fact that God was calling Gideon to a specific place of leadership and service. So then Gideon says, verse 17, if I have found favor in your eyes, show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. Now this is, Gideon asks for a lot of signs throughout his story. I think this one's one of the better ones. I think this is good because if you're talking with a prophet and a prophet's telling you these things, well, how do you know that the prophet's telling the truth? You need some confirmation. And so he asks the prophet for a sign. And he says, please do not depart from here until I come to you and I bring you out my present and I set it before you. And he said, the angel of the Lord said, I'll stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. An ephah, by the way, is like 30 pounds of flour. So he's like a whole goat and a lot of bread. And part of me, this is just my curious brain. I want to know what the angel of the Lord was doing for like several hours while Gideon's inside cooking. Like he didn't have words with friends or Candy Crush to play. He's probably planning out all of eternity. Okay, so the meat... Gideon put into a basket and the broth he put into a pot and he brought them to him under the terebinth tree and presented him. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes. He's like cracker, you know, hard bread, put them on the rock and pour the broth over them. Again, side note, I'm usually telling my children the exact opposite with their meals, but this is what God told Gideon to do. Pour your soup all over your meat and bread. Okay. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that it was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock, consumed the meat, like burned it all gone, and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord, boom, vanished from his sight. Now God has Gideon's attention. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. (laughs) Oh, I get it now. I was, you know, the fire springing up part, that was kind of a first clue. But then when he disappeared from my side, I knew something special was going on. I love it. Gideon said, alas, Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The the book of Exodus says that no one can see the face of God and live. If you see the face of God, because he's holy and we're unholy, to see the face of God unmediated is to die. But the Lord said to him, don't know exactly how, probably speaking just internally to his heart, to his mind. The Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. So then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is my peace. And to this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abezrites. Now that's the conclusion of our story, but I want to, I want to draw a few things out of this because what we see throughout the story is over and over and over this idea of God's word and God's communication. And so I want to point out some things from the story and then I want to connect them to our life today. The first thing I want to point out to you is this. God is a God who communicates, is he not? 
We're so thankful that God is a God who communicates. When, when the people of Israel are, are struggling under the hand of Midian, what in the heck is going on? Why are we like this? God sends a prophet. God, God doesn't leave them guessing. God doesn't leave them in the dark. He sends a prophet. Not only does he send a prophet, he sends the angel of the Lord to Gideon to call him to this place of leadership and this place of service face to face. When, when Gideon has this fearful moment where he realizes he's been in the presence of God himself, the Lord communicates, the Lord speaks to him and says, you're not going to die. Now I'm calling you into this place of leadership. God is a speaking God. In fact, the, the very first verses of the Bible talks about when God created the world, he spoke it into existence. That's so different from every other world religion or every other uh, particularly paganistic uh, ideology about how the world came to be. It was always conflict between gods or usually you know, some sort of relations between gods. That's how the world was made. But the Bible, the God of the Bible, speaks the world into existence. God is a communicating God. And that's very good news for us, right? Because otherwise we'd be left speculating. We'd be left in the dark trying to figure it out on our own. But God is a communicator. Number two, when we speak about God's word, we need to understand that the word of God is a multifaceted idea. Now, for many of us, especially if you grew up in church, when we say the word of God, we mean the Bible, right? Oh, we need to hear the word of God preached. We're going to open up the word. We're going to get into the word today. Um, Yes, the Bible is the word of God. But the word of God is a broader idea than just the Bible. The word of God is God's, again, at its fundamental level, it means God's communication to us. So God speaking, God declaring, God communicating. The word of God in the Old Testament came through the prophets, men and women who were anointed by God to speak on behalf of God. In the New Testament, God spoke his word through the apostles. God spoke his word through the apostles. Now, the, the, the words, not all, but many of the words that were given to the prophets, and not all, but many of the words that were given to the apostles, they were written down in the books that we now have in the Bible. And so these written scriptures are the written word of God. But it goes even beyond that, because the Bible tells us that the word of God is God himself. The word if you are thinking ahead to the New Testament, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus is the word of God. We actually see that even in this story in Judges. If the angel of the Lord is, a, is an appearing of Jesus, then Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is coming. So when we, when we talk about the word of God, let's remember it's not just the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. It's the written word of God. But it's a broader and bigger topic than just the Bible. The third thing we can see in this story is that God's word, it's not just communication, but it's power. God's word isn't just, hey, here's some information. Let me just tell you some things, but there's actually power. We can see that in this story. We're going to get there in the next few weeks in the story of Gideon when God shows up and says, go in this might of yours and I will deliver Midian into your hand. Go, mighty man of valor. Gideon is not in that good place. He is not in a position of valor and strength and being a good warrior. But when God speaks it, God's word actually accomplishes what it sets out to do. You and I, our words do have power, do they not? But our words do not have power like God's words have power. Those of you who are parents will know like, hey, children, go do this. And you're like, I got 50-50 shot if this is going to actually work, right? But the Bible clearly says that when God speaks, it happens. 
And I point you to Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, where it says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. Yes, our words have power because we're created in the image and likeness of God, but God's words have ultimate power and his word never fails. Amen? The fourth thing that we can see in this story is that God's word is our highest need. Now the people, remember, they cried out to the Lord, Lord, we need a deliverer. We need a break. We need these Midianites to get swallowed up in a sinkhole. We need something bad to happen to them. And God says, you know what you need? You need a prophet. You need a preacher who's going to show up and who's going to tell you what's going on. Who's going to talk to you about the gracious deeds of the Lord and saving you out of slavery in Egypt and bringing you into the promised land. You need someone to tell you what God has done for you. And you need someone to tell you what it is that is going to happen when you repent when you truly repent, when you're truly broken over your sin. Gideon, Gideon showed us that even he, he didn't, he didn't internalize the message of the prophet. What's, why is this all going on, God? Why have you abandoned us? Why have you turned your back on us? Gideon needed the word of the Lord. And let me just submit to you that in our lives, we often think we need things more than the word of the Lord. When we're going through a struggle, when we're going through a hardship, when we're facing financial challenges, relational challenges, health challenges, what we think we need most of all is we think we need someone to fix the problem, don't we? I'm having financial trouble. What I need is money or a job or some solution. You know what you need? You need God to speak to you. You need God to say, not here's the fix for this problem, but for God to speak to you and say, Like Gideon, I'm with you. I am with you and I love you. Do not let your circumstances and your emotions dictate your belief on what God is doing in your life. You need the word of the Lord, which leads me to my fifth and final point on this is God's word is more true than our feelings or circumstances. God's word is more true than our feelings and circumstances. Now, hear me on this. I am not saying that your feelings or your circumstances are invalid or irrelevant. Some of you maybe have walked through some very difficult circumstances. I've met with with people, members of the church, where, where they've lived a life for decades of abuse, harsh words spoken over them, Some real terrible things have genuinely happened. The solution, the biblical solution, is not to put some sort of a Christian band-aid or a Christian smiley face sticker and say, put on a happy face, it's all good, let me just quote you a Bible verse. I'm not saying that your feelings are invalid. Some of you struggle with depression. Some of you struggle with dark feelings. I'm not saying that those are invalid, but I am saying to you that God's word is more true than any of that. God's word is more true than your feelings. God's word is more true than your circumstances. We need to remind ourselves of this, like Gideon had to be reminded of it in this moment. Mighty man of valor. Yeah, I, I feel pretty low right now. Go in this strength of yours. Yeah, did you, did you catch me? I'm threshing wheat in a wine press. 
God says, but I've called you, Gideon. I've spoken over you. It's more true. Good news about this as Christians living now on the other side of the cross, we've seen the ultimate word. We've seen the ultimate communication from God. God in his grace, he spoke to the people of Israel. He spoke to Gideon. But do you know that for us, living here after the time of the cross, we have seen the word of God. Jesus is God's ultimate word. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, if you remember uh, last year when we studied the book of Hebrews, almost two years ago now, it says, long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God's a, a speaking and communicating God, but it says here in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The author of Hebrews then goes on to belabor the point that as good as the prophets are, as good as Moses was, as good as the Old Testament scriptures are, we who have seen Jesus have heard the ultimate communication from God. John 1.14, I referenced it a minute ago, said the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Friends, if you've seen Jesus You have heard the word of God. And what's more, here's the really good news, friends. Jesus, the word of God, is more than just communication. Jesus is power and life. Jesus did not come simply to tell us about God or to put on some sort of an example to demonstrate for us what God is like. He did all of those things, but he did so much more because Jesus is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus said in John 5, he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. How do we do that? By our great works, by our efforts, by following all of the religious sacraments? No, by hearing the word of God, the power of God takes life in us and brings us out of death and into life. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, Jesus said, when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. The, the, the good news of the gospel is it doesn't matter how you feel about your sin. It doesn't matter how broken or damaged you feel. If God says you are forgiven, then friends, you are forgiven. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, because he shed his blood, because he died in our place for our sins, because he rose again on the third day, proving that even death does not have as much power as God does, because of what Jesus did, you and I who hear this word of God, we've passed from death to life. And Jesus said, look, even if you die, yet shall you live. And, and Jesus said, I'll raise you up on the last day. Don't even worry about that death thing. When Jesus went to visit Lazarus, uh, you know, who was, who was dead in the grave, before he went, he told his disciples, ah, it's no big deal, he's just sleeping. God has that kind of power that we pass from spiritual death to spiritual life just because of the word of God. This is what Jesus said. So I ask you, friends, do you believe this? Do you believe that, that Jesus is not just a communicator? Yes, Jesus was a communicator. Yes, he showed us a good example. Yes, he told us what God was like. He did all of those things. But the ultimate thing that he did was to bring us into right relationship with God through his death and through his resurrection. May we never forget that, church. Now, 
If those two things are true, if Jesus is God's ultimate word, and if Jesus is, is more than communication, he's power in life, then, then this last thing is true as well, which is this. God's word is still more true than our feelings or circumstances. God's word is still more true than our feelings and circumstances. Okay, so maybe some of you are here today and you're saying, all right, Aaron, I hear what you're saying on this whole salvation thing. I get it. I'm forgiven, but I still feel weak. I still feel helpless. I don't have the skills to pay the bills. I don't, I, don't know why I said that. I, I don't have, I don't, I'll fix that for the next service. I, you know, you say things like, I, you know, I know God's been tugging on my heart to contribute in some sort of way or to serve in some sort of way, but I doubt myself. Maybe like Gideon, you feel like you're the weakest in your family and that your family's the lamest in your clan. But let me tell you, friends, God's word is still more true than your feelings, your experiences, your degrees, your education, your circumstances. God's word is still more true. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 4, 17, he says this, God gives life to dead things and he calls into existence things that do not exist. Things that do not exist. If our God is powerful enough to do that, I've, I've been, um, I recently watched a documentary about uh, quantum physics. I know, I'm a real fun guy to hang out with, but they're, the scientists just struggling trying to figure out how did the Big Bang happen and how did material come into existence? Friends, our God is the one who speaks things into existence. If our God is that powerful, can he not speak into your life the power needed to do what he's calling you to do? Yeah, well, I'm just not very good. I've got a lot of weakness. I've got a lot of, you know, I stutter when I speak. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not, a, I'm not a professional missionary. I'm not a preacher. Yeah, well, look at what Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 12 after going a few rounds with God about his weakness. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. So therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Friends, I wonder if you'd read this out loud with me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, that is not your power. That is not my power. That is not the power of positive thinking or any such pep talk. That is the power of God at work within us. For those of you who are here today who are not Christians, the invitation is hear 